Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11 is the actual vision of this last section of Daniel. I, I, I know, I, don't, I think I don't have to convince you of this, but, you know, I'm so thankful to live in the United States of America. I am. I'm thankful to have been raised in the United States of America. I'm thankful that in God's providence, He placed me here. I was born here. You know, I didn't have a, I didn't have a say about that. You realize that? Neither did you. You know, before you were born, God didn't say, hey, where do you want to go? I mean, in His grace and mercy and in His providence, we were born here, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that because we live in a, in a land, we live in a country, we live under a government, although it's cracked and although it's, it's, boy, it's shaky, but yet we've, we've lived under a government that at its core and at its purpose in the beginning was designed to protect our freedom and our liberties. You realize that? It was designed and the purpose was to protect liberties not given to us by the government, but liberties given to us as our founders understood by God himself. No government gives us rights. God has given us rights. And they sum that up in the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, right? And they understood that what they were establishing was a government that was not to intrude on those rights and a government that was to protect those rights. And I'm thankful we've lived under that type of system. I mean, we could survey the world right now. And as I mentioned, even though our, our government, it's, it's cracked, it's leaky, it's, I mean, it's shaky. We're like, is it going to last? Is it going to, you know, it's kind of teetering right now. But yet we could still survey the world. And you know what? There's not another place I'd rather live. There's not another system, there's not another government out there that I'd rather live under than what we're living under right now. I mean, just take a look at the world. Just take a look at the world. Look at all the governments of the world and then look at what was established here. Is it perfect? No. Was it ever perfect? No. Not even in the beginning. But I have to tell you, I, I, I admire the Founding Fathers and what they did because they were men of great wisdom, great character, and what they established was something the world had never seen before, and it's lasted this long. And I tell you what, compared to what else is out there and compared to what else has been out there in the world, it's pretty darn good. And I'm thankful to live in America. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. The greatest happiness that I can have is knowing God. That's the greatest happiness that I can have. That's the greatest joy that I can have as a human being. It's the greatest. Now, we would say, well, that may be true just of believers and Christians. No, it's true of all believers. It's true of all humanity. It's true of all human beings because all human beings were created in the image of God. And sin broke that relationship and that was broken. And so we were cut off from pursuing that. And so the greatest happiness that anyone could ever pursue in this life is to know God. It's to know Him. It's to have hope and trust and faith in Him. Daniel 11, this vision, speaks to this 
in this way. I am not to put my faith and trust in earthly kingdoms. And as we'll see, earthly kingdoms, they are not stable. They are not stable. As much as I love and admire what our founding fathers did, as much as I love living in the United States of America, it is not my hope and trust. My hope and trust is in God. My hope and trust is in His Word. My hope and trust is in knowing Him. And I'm thankful that what we've seen over these last 200 and something years has been established and we've lived here. And when we get into this vision of Daniel 11, all of a sudden we're reminded, we've seen this in Daniel throughout the book of Daniel. We've seen these kingdoms. We've seen in this vision as Daniel is, is, is showing and detailing these visions We have seen kingdom after kingdom and we have seen some horrible things done to the people of God in the name of these kingdoms. And yet what we've seen is these kingdoms, they're not stable. Their gods are not stable. Their gods are not stable because they're not true gods. There's only one true God. Daniel knows this one true God. And we've seen it throughout the book of Daniel. Now, when we get to Daniel 11, this is the vision. Daniel 10 was the preparation for the vision. You remember a couple of weeks ago when we were dealing with Daniel chapter 10. This 10, 11, and 12 is this final section of Daniel. And it's it's sandwiched in between the beginning and the end, so to speak, is this vision in chapter 11. Now, I have to tell you this about this vision. Because when you dig into it, you start pulling it apart, you start looking at it, we could spend hours going through the history. We could spend hours looking at the history. We're going to have to touch on some of it. I'm not going to spend an hour or two going through the history of it, but I will tell you this, it is absolutely fascinating. It's fascinating because what God tells Daniel in this vision some several hundred years before the actual events unfold, the detail that he gives Daniel and the way it unfolds in history, the detail is incredible. In fact, it's so precise that secular historians look at it and go, there's no way no human being could do that. There's no way a human being could predict this kind of stuff with this kind of accuracy. And liberal scholars, when they approach the Bible, say, wow, see, Daniel, Daniel had to have been written during this time. Daniel had to have been written during the time of Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, because that's who a large part of this is dealing with. He had to, it had to have been written in because there's no way that no human being could foretell and prophesy about these things in such great detail. Guess what? Yes, he did. And yes, our God can. And yes, our God does. And yes, our God always has. He has always revealed His Word. And when He reveals His Word, it's true, it's accurate, and it's going to happen just the way He says it's going to happen. Always, without fail. He hadn't missed one thing. He hadn't failed at one thing. So this vision of 11 is so precise in this detail and the history of it, it's just amazing. It really is. Daniel 11 picks up Daniel 8. In Daniel 8, in that vision, we saw this broad stroke of history from Cyrus to Antiochus Epiphanes, and it was real quick. Daniel 11 comes back and gives some accurate detail exactly how this time period 
will unfold. And again, it's incredible in its detail. It's incredible at what Daniel says and what he... Daniel, Daniel didn't know. I mean, God's revealing this to him in this vision. So, stay with me just for a minute. Don't check out on me. I'm fixing to take you through a quick stroll from about a couple of hundred years of history in this first part of chapter 11. It's here. This is what God's given us. And the first part of it in the first four verses deal with Persia and Greece. We've already seen this. The Persians. The Persians overthrew the Babylonians who took the Jews, who took Daniel and his people captivity into Babylon. And chapter 11, verse 1, also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And he says in verse 2, and now I will tell you the truth. You remember how the preparation started in chapter 10? The message, verse 1, this message was true. And then it ended with Daniel saying, but I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. What he is saying here and what he's about to reveal is true. It's not false. It's not make-believe. It's not after the fact either. It is before. It is several hundred years before these events unfold. Well, the first thing is Persia. And this is what he says when he talks about, Behold, three kings are to arise in Persia. And the fourth shall be far richer than them all. These are three Persian kings that arose after Cyrus. Cyrus overthrew the Babylonians. Then there was a succession of three kings. Now, I'm not going to get into names here, all right? Because I want to give you this broad overview of what's happening. So there was a succession of three kings. But I will give you the name of the fourth one. We've seen him before. His name is Xerxes. Xerxes was a powerful Persian king. And Xerxes had in his mind, I am going to defeat, I'm going to defeat Greece. And so Xerxes went after Greece and went after certain lands from Greece and uh, he was beat back. He failed miserably in doing this. He was not able to invade Greece. In fact, there's the famous battle of Salamis, 480 B.C., in which he was defeated, uh, terribly defeated. He retreats and he leaves his army there and his army's crushed and so forth. So Cyrus, three quick kings, Xerxes, Persian king, and we've met this next king before. We've met him before. So this fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided into the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity nor according to his dominion, which he ruled for his kingdom will be uprooted even, uh, even for others besides these. This fourth one, guess who it is? Or this great one? It's Alexander the Great. Now remember, we've already been through this history. Chapter 8, the vision of 8, took us through this history. Persia, Greece, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great dies after he takes and uh, basically conquers the world. He dies. When he dies, his kingdom is broken up into four sections. He had four generals that ruled. His family, his wife, his, his children were murdered. And then the four generals took over. And so that's why it was divided toward the four winds of heaven. But not among his family. They killed his family. And these four generals took over. 
Now, it starts to get really, really sticky when you work down from verse 5 all the way to verse 35. Because all of a sudden, you got this king in the north, you got a king in the south, you got another king, you got this king, and then you got a wife, and then you got a daughter, and you got all this stuff going on. Let me try to simplify it as best as I can. All right? Babylon, world power, takes the Jews captive into Babylon. Daniel is taken in this. Persia comes along, defeats Babylon, frees them. They go back. They go back to Jerusalem. They begin to rebuild. Greece comes along and Alexander the Great. They defeat the Persians. Okay? When Alexander's kingdom is divided into four, it basically, there are two powers that come. There are two powers that develop. There is a power to the north. This was known as the Seleucid dynasty. It was centered in Syria. If you were to look at a map, if you were to take a map of the Middle East, what you would see at this time is north, that's the Seleucid dynasty. That's Syria. South, the southern king, was one of the generals who became famous or became powerful. His name was Ptolemy I. Seleucid I in the north, Ptolemy I in the south. Syria in the north, Egypt in the south. And guess what's right in the middle? Judah. Jerusalem's right in the middle. Right in the middle. And what's going to happen? What's going to unfold? And Daniel gets such great detail. What's going to unfold are these battles between the Seleucids and the Ptolemy. Uh, so the the uh, Seleucius I, Ptolemy I, and their descendants, and all these battles, and Jerusalem sitting right here in the middle, and it's like this political football. It gets passed to one, then passed to another. Passed to one, and then passed to another. Until finally, one bad dude shows up. And we've seen him before. And his name is Antiochus IV. Antiochus Epiphanes. When he finally shows up, and he's a northern king, when he finally shows up, what he does to Jerusalem is unbelievable. Now we've touched on it before because in Daniel 8, that vision showed how horrible Antiochus Epiphanes was. Now I believe Antiochus is, is a picture of the Antichrist. I believe he's, he's sort of a forerunner of the Antichrist because I think that's the way Jesus uses the abomination of desolation when he talks about what Antiochus did and ties it to the end and so forth. I think this, this horrible person, Daniel describes him as a despicable person. He's a foreshadow of what's to come. The Antichrist will be far worse. He will be far worse. So beginning in verse 5, there, there's this history. It runs through. And it starts with the king of the south. That was Ptolemy I. He became strong. And then there was a king in the north. That's Seleucius I. In verse 6, and it skips a lot. But I mean, it's not straight chronological history here. But in verse 6, just to show you the accuracy of the detail of Daniel. And at the end of some years, they shall join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south, the king of the south, one of Ptolemy's grandsons, his daughter... He gives her to marriage to the king of the north. They make an arranged marriage. They're trying to merge the dynasties. Her name was Berenice. This king that gave his daughter to this one and he married had a first wife. 
And guess what his first wife did? She murdered Berenice and the king and his infant son. And then she tried to rule. Well, guess what? Retaliation. And here we go. North and south. North and south. And it plays out this way for several hundred years. The political intrigue, listen, there have been books written about this. There have been movies made about this period of history. And what happens with the Persians and the Greece and the Greeks. Finally, we work through all of these verses and we get through all of this detailed history. The kings of the north, kings of the south, and so forth. And we get to verse 11 and it says, And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him and the king of the north who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. Now, this king, and running all the way down to verse 19, it's dealing with one king, and that is Antiochus III, the great. Now, he's a relative. He's of the north. Antiochus III, he was called Antiochus the Great. And when you read through this section, it's a detailed history of some of the things that he did. He used all sorts of political maneuvering, all sorts of political tricks, all sorts of things. One thing he did, though, towards the end, is he caught the attention of an up-and-coming empire. You know who that was? Rome. Rome is up-and-coming. Antiochus the Great captures the attention of the Roman Empire Because he's sort of needling, he's sort of picking, he's sort of poking, he's sort of ambitious and wants more and so forth. And so he captures the attention of the Roman Empire. He goes after Egypt once, then goes after Egypt again, and then Rome says enough and helps Egypt and defeats him, and he's done. He dies, he has a son that rules for a short time, and then he has another son. This is the son in verse 21 when Daniel says, And in his place shall arise a vile person. This is Antiochus III's son, Antiochus IV, better known as Epiphanes. He was horrible, vile. Now, he carries on this. By this time, Jerusalem is in northern hands. Jerusalem's not in the Ptolemies' hands. It's, it's gone back to the north, and so they have it. Antiochus Epiphanes looked at the Jews and he looked at Jerusalem and he said, I'm going to make you Greeks. And they didn't want it. I mean, this was carrying on a lot of what Alexander the Great wanted to do, the Hellenization of the world. And there were some that didn't want it. So when we get into this and when we get in, especially after verse 29, and we start to see there are people who know their God and they resist and they're put to death and so forth, all this happened during this time. When Antiochus came back to Jerusalem after being embarrassed by the Romans, and this is what history says happens. Antiochus goes and Rome has has got him and they're going to kill him. And basically a Roman general takes Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, draws a circle in the sand, puts Antiochus in the circle and says, Now, before you leave this circle, you're going to make up your mind what you're about to do. Do you want to fight or are you going to tuck your tail and go home? Guess what he did? tucked his tail, and went home. Now, you got to remember, Rome's up and coming. Rome's not quite what Rome will be, but Antiochus was smart enough to know, hang on, there's a new kid on the block. 
So what does he do? He's embarrassed. He goes back. And when he goes back to the north to Syria, he goes through Jerusalem. This is when he ransacks Jerusalem. This is when he goes in the temple. He slaughters a pig on the altar in the temple. This is the abomination of desolation. This is when in, 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 in just one time he kills 40,000 Jews. He's slaughtering people left and right because he's ticked off. Rome's embarrassed him. And also there was a rumor that while he was messing around down there in Egypt, he died. And there was a little rebellion. And when he came back through Jerusalem, he put down that rebellion. And he blamed the Jews. And he took his anger and embarrassment out on the Jews. And it was a horrible, horrible slaughter. Now, again, I think Antiochus is sort of a foreshadow of the Antichrist that's to come. So verse 29, we skip down through here to verse 29. At the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For the ships from Cyprus shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. This is after he's embarrassed by Rome. He's enraged and he comes back. and He takes out his vengeance on the Jews. So he will, shall return and show regard for those who forsook the Holy Covenant. At the time when he comes back in, he says, listen guys, all you Jews, if you'll give up your Judaism and join me, I'll go easy on you. And there were a lot of them that did. There are a lot of them who said, we're going to save our neck here. After all, this comes later, but when in Rome... I'm going to save my neck. He wants me to act Greek. I'm going to act Greek. But there was a group of them that did not. The first band of this group that did not were known as the Maccabees. And we read about this in some of the apocryphal books that were written during this time. Some amazing history in the, in the books of the Maccabees. Josephus gives a lot of history, a Jewish historian of this. So verse 31, And the forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. They shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there an abomination of desolation. Antiochus did all of this. He played political football with the high priest, set up one, removed another, and then he stopped the sacrifices. He goes into the temple on the altar and the holy place on the altar and slaughters a pig as if to say, I've conquered your God. Now submit. Verse 32, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God, listen to this, the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And they did. It's amazing what they were doing, able to withstand this onslaught from Antiochus. And then years later, so there were a group of people who said, no, we're not giving in to it. We're not. We're going to trust God. We're going to continue to trust God. Which group do you think Daniel would have been in? The second group, obviously, right? He wasn't going to give in. I mean, he stared down these pagan kings before, right? He would have been in that second group. I will not defile myself with these pagan kings and these pagan practices. Verse 33, and those of the people who understood shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by the sword. And they did. Many of them were killed by Antiochus, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue 
uh, all this political maneuvering that went on. So that's a real, real, real quick run through of that history from verse 5 to verse 35. We run from Cyrus all the way to Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. Now, if you want to read that, all the major histories, all the major history books have this history right there. Right there. Some of the greatest battles during this time, battles like Marathon, battles like Thermopylae. Movie 300. I mean, this is that history. This is that history. But then we get to verse 35. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Now, I want you to hang on to that, the appointed time. It is still for the time of the end, and it's still there is an appointed time. Verse 36, then the king shall do according to his own will. Now, some see this as a continuation of Antiochus. The only problem is, is that what follows does not fit Antiochus historically. It doesn't fit. I think, verse 36, there's a shift. It's a very subtle shift, but it's a shift. And we move from talking about the north and the south in this history, and all of a sudden, verse 36, we're thrust into the future, and this is a description of the character and activities of the Antichrist. None of this fits in Titus. None of it. So verse 36, Then the king shall do according to his own will. That's what the Antichrist will do. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. That's what the Antichrist will do. Shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. Notice that again. What has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. Let me... That desire of women 20, 30 years ago may have meant one thing, but let me just share with you, and I'm going to chase a rabbit for a quick second. Let me just share with you something very intriguing with this. When it says here, he's not, he's not going to show any regard for the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. What it means is, basically, he could care less about the sexes. That's not important to him. Any bells going off? Any warning flags going, oh, hang on a second, wait a minute. All the transgendered mess that we're in right now and people pushing the idea that gender is nothing? I don't know. I'm just saying it's a very interesting description of some of the things the Antichrist will do. Maybe what he'll support. So, let's continue. So, nor for the desire of women, nor regard of any God. For he shall exalt himself above all, but in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses and a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God. He shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for the gain. That's, I think, is a description of the Antichrist. That's to come. 
We're dealing with past history, and then all of a sudden we shift to the future. Verse 40 continues the same thing. At the time of the end, the kings of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And, and uh, he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, pass through them. I think this may be the description of what's going to happen in the end and these great battles. See, the problem is historically none of this fits Antiochus. None of this fits his downfall. So I think it's very well possible that Daniel's talking about here this vision. Did Daniel understand it? No. But he's talking about something in the future. John picks up on it. John picks up on it in the book of Revelation. And his description of the Antichrist. So I think that's what we're dealing with here. Now what I want you to see too... After all this, he's going to stretch out his hand against countries. The land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold, silver, and precious things. He's going to be like this great world ruler. Libyans, Ethiopians shall follow it, shall, uh, follow it his heels. Verse 44, But news from the east and from the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury and destroy and annihilate many. Then verse 45, And he shall plant the tents of his, of his uh, palace between the seas and the glorious mountain. Beautiful land already mentioned here in this chapter. That's Jerusalem. This holy mountain is Jerusalem. So he's going to set up his palace between the sea and the holy mountain. And then listen to this. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. End of story. Well now hang on a second. If this is the end of the Antichrist, it's got to be some great Hollywood production. I mean, it's got to be some great climactic ending, drama, great battle, great something, right? And yet all the scripture says is that he's going to come to his end. It's so anti-climactic. So anti-climactic. One thing that comes crystal clear through this is the unstable, how unstable earthly kingdoms are, right? We got the same kind of stuff going on here. Just, just not, you know, we don't have senators killing each other and presidents knocking off other presidents. We don't have that kind of stuff going on. But I guarantee you there's just as much political intrigue and maneuvering and deal making as what went on during this time that's going on in Washington right now, you know? I guarantee you that's going on. But earthly kingdoms are so unstable. Their, false, their, their, their gods are so unstable. They're false gods. Earthly kingdoms, they corrupt. They do. They corrupt. You notice what Antiochus did to the people of God here. Tried to divide them. And there were some that fell. And there were some that stayed true to the word of God. In the beautiful land. But in this is all this encouragement. All this encouragement to the people of God. And I think that's the purpose of the vision. It's the ones who knew God. The ones who stayed true. There's little hints of encouragement. Verse 27. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil and they shall speak lies at the same table but shall not prosper. Why? For the end will still be at the appointed time. Who controls that? God. You see, there's that little ray of encouragement. Man, this is bad. Man, these are some bad people. Yeah, but they're still in a point in. And then it appears again. 
Then we see it in verse, uh, verse 35. And some of these of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, make them white until the time of the end. Because it's still, it's still for an appointed time. In this, in this vision of chaos is the glimpse ever so slightly of the sovereignty of God over all these affairs. These kings don't do one thing that God didn't allow. They don't do one thing that he didn't allow. These little world leaders that run around now sometimes cause us to, oh my gosh, and panic. Oh, you know, they're firing off missiles here and doing this and making these. De-. Let me tell you something. The godless president of China does nothing except what God allows. The godless pagan Putin over Russia does nothing except what our sovereign God allows. The sawed-off dictator of North Korea does nothing except what our, our sovereign God allows. And whatever they think they can cook up, there's an appointed end. And there's a judgment coming. And that operates on our God's timetable, right? I think there's a great encouragement no matter what we're facing. The Antichrist, again, it ends so with, with this, it just ends. It reminds us, you remember going through 2 Thessalonians there in chapter 8 when Paul's dealing with the Antichrist there? Uh, chapter 2, he's dealing with him. And, 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 and verse 8 just, just literally says, and when he comes back, Jesus blows him away. Paul says, it's with this breath he blows him away. Jesus doesn't whip up an army and say, Oh, Father, this guy's strong. I don't know if we can beat him. When it's time, the skies part, and here he comes, and with his breath, he defeats the strongest, most concentrated evil the world has ever known, in which Antiochus was just a foreshadow. And he defeats him with his word. That's sovereignty. And that's power. So I'm left with this question. Am I part of the group here? The people who know their God. Is that me? Do I know him that way? I mean, really, do I really know him that way? Remember when we started, uh, the, the greatest happiness, the pursuit of God, knowing him? I mean, do I know him as he's revealed himself? Or have I created an idol in my mind? And I'm worshiping an idol in my mind. It may be bits and truth, bits and pieces of truth. It may be bits and pieces of Sunday school stories that I've been told or that I was raised with. But in, in reality... Yeah, I believe in God, but yet in reality, the one I'm worshiping has been created in my own mind, and it's actually an idol. And lo and behold, it looks more like you than it does the God of the Bible. You know how subtle that is? You know how dangerous that is? 
And yet we do it. Do we know Him? This is what Paul said, 2 Timothy. In chapter 1, he says, look, guys, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor me, his prisoner. Don't be ashamed of this. I'm not ashamed of him, so you don't be ashamed of it. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior. Who is that? Jesus Christ who has abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. And it's for this reason I suffer these things. Nevertheless, Timothy, I'm not ashamed of this. I'm not ashamed of it. I don't care what names they call me. I don't care what names they call us. And they're calling us some names right now. The fangs are out. The gloves are off. They're punching below the waist. And they're coming at us. You don't believe me? Just open your eyes and listen what they're saying. I'm not ashamed, Paul says. Why? For I know. I know whom I believed. Not only do I know whom I believe, but I'm persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. I know and I am persuaded. Keep until that day? What day? Judgment. The end. Judgment. I don't know how all this history is going to work out. I don't know when the Antichrist is coming. I don't know precisely what's going to happen, but I do know this. If it unfolds tomorrow, guess what? He can keep what I've committed to him. What have I committed to him? My heart and soul, my everything. That's what I've given him. I didn't hold anything back. So I guess the question would be, along with, do you know him this way? I guess the question would be, what have you held back? What have you held back? I'll give him this, but I'm not this. I'm going to let him have this. I, yeah, he can take my problems, but he's not, he can't tinker with my heart. He can't tinker with my conscience. And Oh, no, he can't tinker with that. I just want to hold that to myself. Then guess what? You don't know him. You don't know him. You don't. Until you give it to him all. He accepts nothing less. Where are you going to stand? You going to keep giving in to this world? Just like those Jews did with Antiochus? You're going to keep saving your neck every day? Or are you going to abandon everything for Him, no matter the cost? To me, I don't see much of a choice. I don't see much of a choice. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Daniel.
Lord, it's amazing at how such detailed history we 